everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about Remco Evenepoel's, I'd say, pretty surprising win at the Volta España. Surprising, but uh, never in doubt, oddly. Um, really dominant ride. And then talk about the upcoming world championships. Andrew, do you want to say anything about your Choose the Hard Way podcast before we get going? Yeah, Choose the Hard Way is a show where my guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people and uh, and how hard things are fun to do. Um, I have guests from a really broad variety of disciplines. Coming up, we've got Lindsay Dyer, the big mountain skier and activist. I actually have the cycling journalist um, who does much more than cycling journalism now, Ian Dilley from Flow Sports, also a former elite level racer. He's going to be on the show soon. If you haven't checked it out, please come check it out. I've got an episode with uh, Spencer, actually, which is one of my favorite episodes. Might be a good place to start if you haven't checked it out before. We're at choosethehardway.com and everywhere that you listen on social at HardwayPod, and you can find me at Vons. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I, I would if, uh, if you're listening to this, you probably like either Andrew or I or both. So yeah, the, the episode with me would be a good place to start. I'm excited to hear your Ian episode. You guys are so similar in my mind in age, voice, tastes. So that's going to be like a meeting of the minds. Like I can't wait to listen to that one. Interesting, Spencer. Yeah, I mean, much less uh, success on the road for me and um, less notoriety at the driveway series in Austin. But I'm, I'm looking forward to my <laughs> but, conversation with Ian. I'm talking to him later today. Ian's successes on the road actually merge in my mind with your own. So in my uh, mind, you're just as good as Ian. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. That's a that's the power of narrative right there. <laughs> I think he almost won. I think he maybe got second at the yes. U23 National Championships. That's right. And he has a really fantastic feature he wrote about that experience, which yeah. def definitely was the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> definitely was the hard way. I have yeah. many, many thoughts about that feature. We're going to do a separate ep episode just on that. But Andrew, our, 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 our favorite, the guy we never doubted. I don't think we ever said that he wouldn't win. Remco Evanapol. I definitely never said a month ago that he would not, not only would he not win a Grand Tour, he would not win the Tour of Switzerland in his career. Um, Remco Evenepoel wins the Vuelta. It was really dang good throughout the whole thing. Uh, I, I Honest, if you crunch the numbers, it's kind of odd because he lost time to Enric Moss in the climbs, even though he looked like in your mind, talk about the power of perception and narrative, he looked amazing on the climbs he was really, really good on. Um, he did get dropped a few times, lost time in the aggregate, put a ton of time and everybody in the time trials that's really where he won it i mean what what are your takeaways here is rimco he's 22 years old that used to be young that's now like oh is he over the hill maybe he's too old to win the tour that's the new narrative but is this guy going to be a force in the grand tours for the years to come i think you're right spencer cycling is almost the new gymnastics i wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing 12 or 13 year olds taking grand tour wins sometime in the next decade yeah, I think that's will Remco go on to win, you know, I know today I want to talk about whether he potentially wins the worlds. Will he win a grand, yeah, grand I actually, tour, right? I I wouldn't rule this out. It's it's crazy, but he yeah, could do it. You know, maybe we'll get to that. But yeah, I mean, he almost glistened. He was sparkling so much in uh in the Vuelta. Will he win another grand tour? I I mean, I know that I never said that he had no chance that something would happen at the last minute and he wouldn't win this race. And who knows? I mean, it's maybe he still won't win the race, even though he's won it. Does he have a few grand tours ahead of him? He might. You know, I I think that just the overall GC picture in general is a really interesting one. You've got Jai, you've got Remco, you've got Tade, Primos. Richie, did we, did we mention Jonas? Oh, wait, did you say Jonas? I did not say Jonas. Yeah, Jonas is pretty uh, dang good. I'd say he's he's pretty dang good. I I mean, hot take here. I don't know if we're ever going to see uh, Jonas compete at a Grand Tour again. <laughs> I love to dig into that. Jonas, I was thinking about this. He's never had a bad day in a Grand Tour. Like there was that one day it was raining and uh, Pogacar got like a five minute head start on everybody and crushed him. But Jonas didn't get dropped. He was with the main group that day. I don't think he's ever been dropped in a stage of a Grand Tour. So 
pretty good. But wait, you don't think he's, he's ever going to start a race or start another Grand Tour again? I he might. I just I. It's not just me guessing this. The, it really seems like he kind of um, is in like a Marcel Kittle type of situation where he doesn't enjoy the level of fame that he suddenly has. I think it's a lot for any individual to handle. And, you know, is he going to be able to handle that going forward? Because the pressure of being in the public spotlight, having to handle media is going to be greater at every moment in the future than it is right now. So it's just going to compound, I think, as he becomes more and more successful. I'm sure he's working with a sports psychologist and trying to work through whatever is going on. Not everybody's built for this, Spencer. Not everybody's built for life in the limelight like you. You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like myself, um, yeah, I don't know. I I would say I would say put him on the G, the G expectation program. Um, he won the tour. Was at 2018. He Garrett Thomas for 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 people who haven't read his what is his book called like G by G or G in the words of G or something like that. Seems seems about right. Um, but he won the tour in 2018. Was a big deal in his home uh, country of Great Britain. I think he kind of uh, he was partying quite a bit. It was like a newfound fame. He really wasn't the same for like two or three years afterwards. But we saw this year, the guy was awesome. So you, you know, maybe I I could see Jonas having a bit of a hangover just dealing with the newfound fame. Egan Bernal before he had a terrible crash and broke like every bone in his leg was suffering maybe from some of the same thing where he wanted a really young age, was really, really popular in his home country of Colombia and was not quite as good. Um, he did come back and win the Giro. I think that was two years later. So I, I would have the same expectation about Jonas. I think we will see him at the start of a Grand Tour. Again. Yeah, we'll see, him at, we'll see him at the start of a Grand Tour again. I, I think in all the cases that you just brought up, though, I think they're, I just get the feeling they're really different. I feel like Jonas is more on the Cadell end of the spectrum as it relates to potentially how he feels about the level of attention that he's getting and with, I don't want to call him G let's call him Garrett. He, um, I mean, I think he like Wiggins suffered from Oasis syndrome. You're right. Like, I think they went into this spiral of, of doing some serious partying after, after <laughs> <Yeah>. they won <laughs> grand tours or just something about, I mean, if you look at those guys, they've got the Oasis hair, uh, yeah, like we'll see how Thomas's look evolves once he leaves the sport. But real, I mean, like they're real characters, I think, and uh, interesting personalities. And I get the feeling they do like to party. Yeah, which I respect. I respect. Um, yeah, whatever. That's so, cool. so go back to I could talk about Garen Thomas for the rest of this podcast. But to go back to Remco Evanapol, I do. I mean, I don't want to like I don't want to sound like I'm taking anything away from this win. It was awesome. He looked incredible. Like physically, I thought he looked different he's like changing before our eyes like like when he, he won liege great win i think he looks like physically more mature and stronger than he did then um you know he kind of had maybe a softer disposition it sounds crazy because he's like one of the lightest riders in the peloton but he was chiseled and really lean at this welta like if this is how he's going to be from here on out he's going to be hard to drop in the mountains but a lot went right. You know, Roglic crashed out. There was not a dominant team. I mean, his quick step team was was like a jalopy by the end of this thing. They were limping through the race. I'm really impressed that they did as well as they as they could, um, or did as well as they performed. I mean, they really didn't have a lot of support around them in the tough portions of the race. The route was really good for them. So, uh, but anytime it's like Jai Henley wins the Giro, maybe he'll never win another Giro again. Anytime you win a Grand Tour, that's a big accomplishment. So if this is the last Grand Tour Remco ever wins, that's awesome. Um, not many riders win a Grand Tour. You know, think about Alejandro Valverde. One Volta win in his career. He's had many other successes. Like, I honestly wouldn't be shocked if that's kind of Remco's career. Um, a type of, like, one-day sniper who also can win stages, who also has a Grand Tour in his Palmares. The reason I say that is there's just so much talent, as you as you mentioned. There's a lot of really good riders. Like, is he is he realistically going to roll up to the tour and beat Pagachar, beat Vindegard, beat beat Juan Ayuso, who's 19 years old, finished on the podium for the first time since 1904. That's we haven't had a teenager on the podium at Grand Tour. So a lot of good riders. The thing about Rimko, I mean, we we're just about Garen Thomas and Jonas. This is the first Belgian Grand Tour winner. 
I think since 1968 or maybe 1978. Um, he's going to be like the biggest, he has to be one of the biggest sports stars in his home country of Belgium. That, I mean, that has to be a lot of pressure. I mean, or do you think Evanapol like is just the type of guy he's going to take it in stride? It's not even going to bother him. Yeah. You know, he had, he's had a tremendous amount of pressure since he entered the sport. The expectations have always been this guy is going to become multi-time world champion. He's going to be a tour de France winner. He's going to be the next big thing in professional cycling. And early on, I think that led to him having to just being incredibly cocky, a bit of a brat. And I think that it made the public not have the most fondness for him. He seems he's coming across as slightly more mature in uh, in the Vuelta, like the way he's showing up. Yet he's still somebody you get the feeling like this guy talks about himself in the third person a lot. And I do think being in Belgium and having the level of success that he's had this early in his career, there is something of a danger that he might have Tom Boonin syndrome and that um, the fame might be too much. But I, I just get the feeling he's almost the opposite of Jonas. I feel like Remco psychologically from what you see coming across in his interviews, how he shows up, his presence. He seems like he is absolutely built to be in the spotlight. And if you were to have scientists create a rendering of the ideal human form on a bicycle, it's him. Like, like He just looks like he was born to be on a bicycle. He's distinct even in the pro peloton. He just jumps out the way he looks on a bike. His back is flat. He just looks incredibly aerodynamic. He looks like a like a pit bull that's about to enter a dogfight at all times. <laughs> he does. That's exactly how he looks. I um, mean, he does strike me as a person who's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the most famous person in the country. Like, yeah, of course. Like, this is stasis for me. <laughs> I would be uncomfortable <laughs> if I was not. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I want to talk about I, the thing, I, the, the red flag that's coming up for me here, and I could think, I think could be a, maybe an issue for him going forward. I mean, physically, I think he's got all the tools. Like, I think time trialing is massively underrated when it comes to Grand Tours. You know, it's why Chris Froome was so dominant. If you start the race with a multi-minute head start on an everyone because you're so good at time trials, you're hard to beat because you can just hold a pace on a climb. And you can hold that pace because you're great at time trialing. So Rimko's got the tools to, to win multiple Grand Tours. His team, physically, not that good. I think Quick Step presents a problem. But more so emotionally. I mean, Patrick Lefebvre is one of the yeah. str- strangest team managers I've ever seen. Uh, like, you come across a rider like this as a team manager, just repeat after me. Like, we will support Remco in whatever he wants to do. Whatever race he wants to do, we will let him do. Like, that's what you do when you have a Grand Tour rider because it's, A, it's so hard to win Grand Tours. You, you hold on to that rider when you find him. And B, it's really mentally taxing. I mean, those guys have to be coddled. Everything has to be right inside the team because... Once the race starts, there's so much going on. It's nice to have a relaxed, supportive vibe inside the team. Patrick Lefebvre's team manager came out like as he was winning the Vuelta, that saying like, "Well, he's not going to the Tour de France next year." And it's, his reason was like, "Because." Like someone asked him, and he basically just said like, "Cause, cause I don't feel like it." <laughs> like, what is going on here? Like, and this is what Lefebvre does. He he like jousts with his riders through the media. I'm sure he has a theory that it like motivates them or keeps them on edge. And if you have Julian Alaphilippe, who's a superstar and a two-time world champion, and he's not even sure if he's going to go to the tour, you can get the most out of him. I think in some respects that does work for one-day racers and stage hunters, but I don't like that at all for Grand Tour riders. And you should be telling Remco, like, hey, man, whatever races you want to do next year, we're here for you. We support you. That is not the vibe that's coming across. I mean, in fact, he's telling them, I don't care that you're one of the best Grand Tour riders in the world. We're not taking you to the Tour de France. I mean, that is, it's incomprehensible to me. Um, what, what do you think? What was your takeaway on that? Maybe, they are, maybe they're going to bring back Cavendish in this uh, yeah, 2023. Exactly. We see 2023 is the year Cav goes not just for the historic number of stage wins to beat Eddie Merckx's record, but he goes for the GC. So maybe Lefebvre is all in on Cav. Now, seriously, though, I think... Yeah, it's we've talked about this a lot, but Lefebvre always playing psychological games with his writers in the press. But I think more so than playing games with Remco, I think that this is some kind of signal to Remco's agent, who I bet 
came to him and was like, hey, you know, like we're delivering clearly generational talent. We have a good contract. And Spencer, I'm sure you know some details of the contract, which maybe we could talk about. But I bet Remco's agent is saying, you know, like we're happy here and you need to pay us more money. We need to make some adjustments to the contract. Uh, or maybe we start looking elsewhere in 2023 and beyond and trying to find some kind of escape clause to get out of the contract because, yeah, these aren't real ironclad agreements. I mean, I, I was thinking he's got to get out of there because, I mean, what yeah. I talk about things falling his way. The great thing about the Volta, that Quickstack team was just him. You know, they were just focused on him. That that goes a long way for Grand Tour riders. I mean, they, they just signed Tim Merlier, Tim Merlier from Alpecin for a lot of money. They're going to take him to the tour, I bet. And they're going to try to go for stage wins because that's what they do. They're quick step. And then Remco, I guess, has to coexist with like a sprinter stage win team. I don't like that at all. And that's assuming he goes. If he, I mean, the, he's 23, which sounds young. I think like old timers would be like, well, it's too young to do the Tour de France. I mean, he's the same age as Taddy Pogacar, who's already won two of them. You got to strike while the iron's hot. We saw Tom Dumoulin dodge the tour for years I, for reasons that are still unclear to me. He just kept saying, I don't like the route. I'm not going. And he let his best years pass him by, and he never won the tour because of that. You've got to strike while the iron's hot. I mean, Rimco's 23. We don't know how long this lasts. You got to go to the tour and try to win it. I mean, that's my stance. That's my opinion. I was thinking he's got to get off this team ASAP and get to like a real team that will ride for him. Talk to someone inside the situation. They said no. Like he's going to stick with the team. He's got a long-term contract. I, I yeah, as you say, they're not ironclad. I yeah. I mean, there's potentially something is going on with Lefevre and his agent, and Lefevre's trying to say, "I'm the boss. This is how it is. You guys will be even be lucky if you get to go to the tour next year." But I don't know. I, I I'm uncomfortable with the whole situation. I think you should get out of there as fast as possible. Well, to support Remco at the tour to have an actual chance of winning, we then have to think about what needs to happen to the composition of the overall team. How does that impact? You know, thinking thinking through here, second and third order consequences. If you really want to shuffle this team to take it from stage hunting, you know, potentially Alaphilippe going out doing some breakaway work or going for sprint stage wins, who do you need to bring to the team? to support Remco at the tour with appropriate resources. Cause you know, looking at Tade versus uh, Jonas, I mean, we talked about it the entire tour Tade because of COVID and other factors just didn't have the team that he needed. And that's why he got smoked ultimately. So what would Lefebvre have to do to build the type of team that they would need for Remco to actually have a chance of winning? What adjustments might need to be made uh, do they actually have a chance this late in the transfer season um, to put him in a position to win? Or is it time to send Evan Apol back down to the junior ranks and put him on restricted gearing? <laughs> yeah. get him. I, I mocked up like a list of U23 riders under the age of 23 that could be racing the U23 World Championships, and it's ridiculous. Um, Evan Apol would be one of them. But yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the resources comment. I mean, I think that's maybe what's going on here. It's really expensive to build a team that can support a GC rider. Like Quick Step's so successful, they have the most wins in the Grand in the World Tour every year, but they don't spend a ton of money relative to everyone else on contracts because stage win stage hunters, kids, if you're out there and you're wondering, should I be a stage hunter or a Grand Tour rider? Be a Grand Tour rider because even if you're getting fifth and sixth consistently, you're getting paid a lot of money. Um, it's a, you get paid a lot less as a stage hunter and one day racer. You're just more expendable. I mean, think about quick step. They just switch these classics riders in and out like Yves Lampard pair, pop him in. He'll win a race. He won a stage at the tour of France this year. So they, they really run on a shooting budget. They're really bonus heavy. But if you want to bring in riders who can support Remco through a grand tour, you're going to have to pay them seven figures base salary. Lefevre doesn't want to do that at all. They do have some like Swiss Army knife. I was surprised with this guy, Il, Ilhan, Ilhan Van Wilder. He's kind of a Remco clone. He's also really young. He performed really well in the mountains. I mean, they have Fausto Masnada, who was not great at this Vuelta, who can do some support in the mountains. Um, Louis Van Marca, who they got from Alpacen, is also good. But I mean, these are not like... Yumbo just signed Woko Kelderman, who is a GC rider in his own right, to ride in support of Jonas Vindegaard in the mountains. I mean, so 
mean, think about UAE. They have Mark Soler as a domestique. They have Joao Almeida who can work as a domestique at the tour. These are really, really, really high-paid riders. It just takes a lot of money to build. I mean, Sepp Kuss makes a lot of money. Not to out Sepp Kuss as a rich, a rich or anything like that, but Sepp Kuss makes a lot of money, and he just rides in support of, of his Yumbo teammates at these Grand Tours. So you really have to splash a lot of cash. Uh, Lefebvre, for, he might be a kind of a strange man, in my opinion, and has a unique management style, but the guy is a good businessman. He knows how to keep his payroll down. Um, which keeps his pay up. I think he wants to keep doing that. I, I yeah, I know. I I could see them maybe maybe bringing in one other rider. It's really late late in the transfer season. They have a pretty full roster. Um, I mean, someone like Jay Vine, if they could have signed him before this Vuelta, would have been ideal. Um, Vine locked down. I don't think Vine actually Vine's probably the more, one of the more underpaid riders in the pro peloton, but. He signed an extension through next year, so he's not available. There's not a ton of options, to be honest. And like the fact that Yumbo's signing Wilco Kelderman level riders to be domestiques means it's you've really, really got to build a strong team. But I, I also don't see them going head to head with Yumbo and UAE. Like if Evanapol is going to win the tour next year, he's just going to have to do it on stealth mode. He's just going to have to sit behind those teams and just be comfortable being by himself a lot i mean it's not a great setup for grand tours we also can't underestimate lefebvre's media strategy he is in a media market where he's on the same level as you know an nfl head coach in the united states like i'm imagining if jonathan Vaughters were an nfl head coach and instead of bike twitter paying attention to what he had to say the entire country paid attention to jonathan Vaughters. That's actually the situation Lefebvre is in. I mean, he has a column in a newspaper. He makes news almost every day. And the more he's in the news, the more he's getting coverage of his sponsors and delivering value for them. So I think that there's a psychological aspect to what he's doing. I definitely think he's trying to leverage social engineering and nationalism to get certain results with writer agents. And then I think he just wants to be in the news constantly because he likes being a media personality and it's how he delivers value for sponsors. He kind of reminds me of like a college football coach or something. You know, it's almost because yeah, totally. like NFL football coaches are so professional. You almost never hear them talk about, you know, it's like Bill Belichick. She's like, yeah, the, the team we're playing is awesome. I love that quarterback. It's, it's like fake praise because they want to stay out of the news. Yeah. yeah, he had kind of like an eccentric no, college football coach, like an SEC. Yep. Maybe, uh, I mean, not the perfect analogy, but more like a Steve Kerr where doing something interesting all the time and uh, stays in the news for reasons beyond the scope <laughs> yeah, of just like what's happening with athletes. Evil Steve Kerr. If Steve Kerr was just like, you know who's to blame for sexual assault? Women. <laughs> like if Steve Kerr was just a bad guy, then he'd be Patrick Lefebvre. Patrick Lefebvre, uh, one of his uh, writers, sexually assaulted a woman, and then Lefebvre blamed the woman. That's the context there. Yes, yeah, so they're not analogous in that way, just in the way of staying in the media for very different reasons. So the big takeaway from this, well, other than the fact that Remco Evanipol is good, officially, we can now say it out loud, the guy's awesome. Um, Primus Roglic is sad. I'm sad. I wish he would have stayed in that race. I still don't think he could have beaten him. That uh, final week was oddly bereft of uh, cool climbs and good routes, but a lot of young talent. I mean, Juan Ayuso, 19 years old, gets third. I've never seen anything like that. Um, you could say Tade Pagachar got he got third at the Vuelta in 2019 Vuelta at the age of 20. He was stronger than Ayuso, I thought. Uh, if that was a four week race, Pagachar would have won it. Carlos Rodriguez gets seventh. Timon Aronsman, sixth. Both of those guys are under the age of 22. Um, and there's one other young writer I'm forgetting. Uh, hold on a second. I feel terrible I'm forgetting this young man. Um, I guess Shuala made his young too. And then Giant. No, yeah, I didn't forget anyone. So, Andrew, what's going on here? I have a theory. I have a couple theories, and I read one late, late last night that I'm going to share with you. But what are your theories? Why, why are these young writers so good? relative to like the older stars like Lopez and Enric Mas. 
Yeah, I think it goes back to a topic we've covered before, which is the democratization of training, nutrition, and recovery information, and them beginning very serious training programs that are data-driven from a very young age. I think that that's the main thing that's made a difference and why we're seeing so many young riders uh, succeeding so soon. What do you think, Spencer? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I agree with that. Also, yeah. something to think about, like, 10 years ago, Ayuso, Aronsman, Rodriguez aren't at this race. Evanable. Yeah, None of those guys sure. are here. They're at some crappy race in Belgium. They're at a Kermes on a U23 team making like $400 a month. The fact that it was like, manda- I guess the NBA was like this, you know, like Patrick Ewing did four years in college. Like, why? Why would you not just go professional? And now a lot of the good riders skip that step or good players skip that step. Same thing in cycling where this thought that like you have to go U23 never made a ton of sense to me. I mean, if Juan Ayuso is good enough to get third at the Welt at 19, he should just be racing professionals. Why would he have to race in U23? Um, and I think team managers also used to be like, well, this guy's 19. And this was maybe before they understood power. It's like, well, he's 19. He has to work for an older rider. And now they can just say, well, he's way stronger than everyone else on the team. He should just be riding for himself. Um, the fact that they're just out of U23 and at these races gives them a chance to shine. But I read this pretty, it actually reminded me of you, pretty interesting theory that um, like a lot of, so we just know now that eating a lot of food during riding allows you to be more powerful. That's why we're seeing race speeds go up, average powers go up because people are just properly uh, nourished during efforts. You used to not eat that much during actual races and rides. And this is possible because of like the, the famous two to one ratio gel, um, like, uh, like Mar- Martin, Martin. I don't quite know how you pronounce the gel name. It's a very good energy gel. They're, they're wildly expensive, but you know, they, they, it's like a gel that allows you to eat like 400, 500 calories during a race. And that I mean, hey, that's let's just hit pause there. That's just marketing. You don't have to have Martens. We covered this on the last podcast. You're right. It does have the magic ratio, which is two parts maltodextrin to one part fructose. What's different about the Martens product is that it's suspended in a in a gel that's algae based, and uh, was initially made famous because Kipchoge was using it in his preparation for breaking the uh, marathon world record and then the breaking two project. Subsequently, it's become clear that it's really about that ratio and training your gut to be able to tolerate ingesting and absorbing a high level of carbohydrate, which you actually have to do over the course of months or a year. And riders are now getting up to 150, 170 grams per hour. Like I heard Keegan Swenson talking about this on the Trainer Road podcast recently. I mean, as recently as Three months ago, people were like, their minds were blown that Matthew Vanderpool was ingesting 120 grams of carbs per hour when he had a piece of tape on his stem that had his nutrition scheme. I don't remember. It might have been during the Tour of Flanders. And then he revealed like, yeah, this is what I'm eating during a race. Three years ago, people were eating maybe a maximum of 60, 70 grams of carbs per hour. That was thought to be the upper limit of what it was humanly possible for someone to actually absorb and metabolize while exercising at the intensities that happen during a cycling race. And if you go back 20 years ago, I mean, Spencer, I don't know what was happening um, on your extremely well-funded KU elite um, amateur racing team. But a lot of people just used to not eat at all when they trained. They thought that made them tough. They wouldn't drink water. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. still, no, there's I, still I, riders I, like that yeah, now. I remember like, this. Yeah. Like if you're doing that, you're actually an idiot. You're not <laughs> tough. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I interrupted you though, but like I can't let the Martins comment go by because like they've done a great job at marketing and they were one of the first products to market in that space. But it's a good product. I personally... <clears throat> You know, Spencer, I know you're a bit of a foodie. I, I really don't like the mouthfeel of that product to me. Like you are drinking a it's a it's really a very unique. yeah, it's a very lightweight gel type of feeling in the mouth. And I prefer uh just water or something that has the viscosity of water. But anyway, 
you were saying yeah yeah that'd be funny if that was my product and i'm just like i don't know this is gel martin i've I, it's a pretty good company <laughs> <laughs> um so the theory is that i mean it's exactly what you're kind of describing that this is a newer phenomenon and if you're greg van avermaet you're just like well what the hell why would i eat that's too many gels it's 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. I can't do that. And young writers don't know any different. They've been brought up. What Juan Ayuso doesn't remember not eating this much. And it's easier for him to just go into this new reality than it is to like teach an old dog new tricks, basically. Um, I don't know if I totally buy the theory, but it's kind of an interesting, I thought it was like an interesting theory that that's one of the reasons these young writers almost have an advantage because they don't know any different other than shoving gels down your gullet i mean that's a lot of calories and carbohydrates per hour i'm not sure but on the other hand if that was my job if i was making four hundred thousand dollars a year racing a bike i'd probably just be like okay that's what i do now so it's an it is an interesting theory i don't know if i totally buy it but i mean it also just could be back to what you said that you can be 18 19 and train like the top professionals do you know it's not as opaque and like really like for Mich- Michelle Ferrari was Lance Armstrong's doping doctor. And the guy is just a smart guy who like knew how to mix really good training with EPO. And it was not really like a secret sauce. He just kind of was a good, like a, an interesting thinker who could write training plans that probably would work now, you know, versus there just was not a lot of like smart training even fif- 10, 15 years ago. So could just be that that's all been you know that edge has been smoothed out and everyone just has access to really good training now yeah it also it could be something else and the nutrition thing could just be a cover story similar to the story of efficiency being cited as a factor for some athletes performing at a level above all other athletes in a previous generation don't forget long femurs yeah, long femurs, efficiency. <laughs> well, you know. and then you you mentioned I don't I, maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't don't know if this is like a thing that's common knowledge, but what, the marathoner. I mean, I have my own doubts about. I think track and field personally is like that's my own personal belief is like a really dirty sport currently. So the fact that this is coming from track and field it makes me a little uneasy. Actually, I didn't know that that's where this started. Yeah, we're going down a rabbit hole here, but I was listening to another podcast yesterday and one of the hosts of the podcast is a high performance expert and he works with a lot of athletes preparing to go into the NFL and other sports. And I don't know why he did this, but you know, the NFL tests, I believe one day a year and drug tests one day a year, the athletes know when the test is happening as do the agents. And so it's, it's often just called a stupid test because if you don't <laughs> pass the test and that you know is coming, like you're stupid. Um, so he was describing, and they do, uh, they do something analogous to the biological passport. The UFC does this as well, where they test, they set a baseline for the athlete, and then that's what they really use going forward to determine whether or not the athlete is using doping products. And again, I don't know why he did this, but he described the exact process that they would use when they start working with a new athlete how they would dope the athlete uh, when they were heading into the baseline tests so that they would be in the very high range of normal but within the normal range and then going forward that's the baseline so you know all they would do is dope up to the limit and i mean that of course is not accounting for the fact that if you're using synthetic testosterone epo uh, other products like that the you can you can tell if you're using those uh, those drugs just from testing for metabolites, I believe, or the presence of exogenous uh, hormones. So I don't know why that's not happening. But if you're just looking, for example, at testosterone to epitestosterone ratio, or maybe things related to the uh, the age of blood cells, that's he's like, yeah, this is exactly how we do it, and this is why drug testing and these major league sports that you're watching is a complete joke. Yeah, you see this in in the NBA sometimes too. The uh, the intelligence test where random people will test positive for steroids, and then you're like, well, like they can't be the only one. But it's exactly what you're describing, where you get one day a year 
don't screw it up. And there's actually a team that's like famous for like rehabbing athletes' bodies, and one of their uh, one of their players tested positive for steroids. So that's probably what's going on there. Um, it's all a, the NBA and NFL and Major League Baseball have really weaved a fantastic tale there and gotten people not to pay attention to how much performance enhancing drugs are going on in those leagues. But World Championships, Andrew, um, we were maybe a little negative on it. Last time we talked, I think that's like the the general consensus. I'm a, I'm kind of getting more excited as it gets closer. I don't know if you watched like the Montreal GP, awesome race. Tadej Pogacar beats Wout Van Aert in a sprint. Gasp! What's happening? Um, and it was like a sixteen thousand. It had like sixteen thousand feet of climbing, and the fact that Wout was even in that group is unbelievable. And Tadej beat him because he's so much more rested because he's a better climber than Wout. But you know, if we have, we're gonna have Wout. Matthew Vanderpool, who's winning again, he's back on the bike after a terrible Tour de France. Wout Van Aert, Biniam Gourmet, who I think is going. Let's we'll talk about that for a second. I'm confused about his travel schedule, and then Remco Evenepoel. There's many, many other riders, but even the fact that those those guys are going, I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. How about you? And who do you like for the win here? I'm pretty excited to have Wout Van too at this race. I don't think that he's going to win. I mean, I'm jumping to the negative here, but I think one of the most interesting dynamics that we're going to see in this race is what Team Belgium does. And, uh, you know, looking back at 2021 when they had a strategy which was to support Wout for the win. But early in the race, Evanapol attacked, which was not on strategy. Wout, of course, did not win. And the two and team Belgium has said, Hey, like we have a two liter strategy going into this race. We've seen this, you know, in many different teams, uh, in a lot of different contexts, whether it's classics, one day races or grand tours, as we saw with Yumbo Visma at the tour this year, can this actually work though? When we have two athletes from two different trade teams who both really want to win this race and probably have the level of talent and ability and are on the form to win the race. What do you think, Spencer? Uh, on paper, yes. I mean, the, the problem with Evanapol last year is he just went so early. He went way too early. But we're seeing a different Evanapol this year. I mean, gone is the, the frivolity of the Evanapol of last year. I mean, if he just, in theory, you know, you have both of those guys, you tell, wow, don't do anything, hide. I mean, that's how... Peter Sagan won three consecutive world championships. I don't think he was exposed to wind at any point in those races, except the final 50 meters when he won the sprints. Um, I guess Richmond, he went a little bit further than that. But tell Wow, like, just stay in the group. I mean, don't do anything. Remco needs to attack 50 kilometers from the finish, not 150 kilometers from the finish like he did last year. But if Remco's out there, that's great for Wow. He can just sit in and say, you know, if you don't chase him, he's going to win. If you do chase him, I'm not going to do any work and I'm going to attack you late or try to win the sprint. I mean, I think that should be the strategy on paper. It could work. Um, it does remind me, I'm getting vibes of, I don't know if you remember these like Italian, when Italy was really, really good and they'd have these like star studded teams at Worlds and it would never work. Um, yeah, I, I'm getting exactly. vibes of that. Same. It, it, you could also, it could get more complicated where it, Worlds is weird because you race for your national team, but there's guys in this race who make millions of euros a year working for Yumbo Fisma. And yeah. so are you really just not going to help Wow, It's like, okay, well, let's just say I was in the race. It's like, okay, the U.S. national team, like, what do I really care? I, okay, they give me a kit and I race for them once a year. Like, I don't, I have no allegiance to this team. I would like to win the race myself, but if my teammate, my trade teammate's better than me, maybe I should just work for my trade teammate. And if he wins, he's going to get a bunch of money and I'm going to get some of that money. So that I think that there could be some uh, the team Belgium might just be a team on paper and that these guys are going right. to have their trade teammates. I would actually sort through how many quick step riders are here, how many Yumbo riders are here, and then keep an eye on that during the race. Yeah, Spencer, Kenny's cutting in. I, before we totally exit the Vuelta, I had a question for you. Are we going to see Carapaz win a Grand Tour again, or is, is he the new Nairo? Oh, this is great. I think he is the new Nairo. I mean, what an amazing Vuelta. Three breakaway wins. I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. I, on one hand, I, it's but that's not what they're paying him for. You know, That's not to just show up and be so out of shape. And it's, it's not professional. I mean, that's not good. He was actually never quite prepared at any point in a, in a grand tour contender sense this year. 
I don't know. I, I, I came away from this wealth of thinking and those were awesome stage wins, like huge respect, great rider, exciting rider. I came away very bearish on his chances to win another grand tour. How about you? Yeah, I don't think he's ever going to have a stronger support team than he had this year. And yeah, I mean, he blew two chances to potentially win grand tours this year with a really strong team. Is he going to have that at EF realistically, Spencer? No. I mean, the, the playbook at EF is like, follow, 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 hope they forget about you. I mean, that's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to win at EF. I mean, there's going to be little to no support. Yeah. And if he takes a handful of stages at the Tour, the Vuelta, the Giro, wherever they deploy him, I mean, like, I'm saying that like, oh, that's no big deal. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. It would probably deliver the value. It would probably exceed the value that the sponsors are hoping to get. Right. And I have to say, um, no disrespect to Greg Van Avermaet, but Carapaz really tastefully deploying the gold to uh like in his kid and on his bike right to uh signify. seemed to be in it for 15 years <laughs> how long was he on that golden bike he was on that golden bike for quite a while i'm just curious to see if we're going to see carapaz carrying that forward and i mean you know he won an olympic gold medal it is something to celebrate is it something to celebrate for perpetuity with like 80 percent of your kit your helmet your glasses and your bike being covered in gold I can't say, having not done I, pr- I probably myself. would do that. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know if I, it's yeah, totally I mean, tasteful. Yeah, but anyway, I think that the way Carapaz is doing it is it's very tasteful. It's understated. Yeah, no, I, I really like him. I was torn from... And the, but also, this Volta was on a platter for him. I mean, the fact that it was not an A-list field. He should, he, honestly, he should have won that Giro. He should not, should not have been beat by Jai Henley. He probably should have won this Vuelta. You know, it's it's not been a great year for him as a Grand Tour contender. One more thing to ask you, Biniam Gourmet. I I think he could win Worlds. Like maybe outside chance would be awesome. I'm not sure an African rider has ever won the World Championships. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. It doesn't feel like it could be true. But the guy is is globe trotting. He was in Montreal. Everyone else in Montreal flew to australia because you do daytime flight europe to montreal easy flight and then it's a nighttime flight from you fly to vancouver and then you fly vancouver to sydney that's like not terrible binium flew back to europe from montreal he's racing like he's racing this week in europe he's racing this weekend in europe and then he's flying he's got to fly to the middle east then you connect to australia that's like multiple overnight flights what is this guy doing like who who designed this travel schedule i'm concerned i'm officially concerned about gourmet's travel schedule um i have no idea why he's racing in europe this weekend i'm even wondering is even did he get pulled out of worlds at the last second and it just is not reflected on the start list yeah that uh that would be my my assumption would be based on that information i wasn't aware of that my assumption would be he either believes he has no chance of winning or he's doing something to grab more UCI points, which I don't think his team needs. So it doesn't seem like that's relegation related, is it? No, because his team is not in danger. They're not on. Yeah. The sort of Damocles is not dangling over their heads. Uh, I don't know. That seems bizarre to me. It seems like he's probably not going to do the race. And if he does, I, I think now that I have that information, I don't think he has any chance of winning because you're right, Spencer, that's, that's too many long flights in too short a period of time with not um, sufficient recovery is what I think. I, d- I did want to ask you though, um, and then we probably should throw out who our picks are for Worlds. And I know, I mean, I've got a tea time with college that I'm going to have to get off to here in a minute. I don't know about you. Um, but one thought that I had about, you know, going back to second and third order consequences, which I always like to think about, shout out Ray Dalio, is uh, with the relegation battle, one unintended consequence is it is actually making us pay more attention to all of these races that were just kind of whatever, blah. I don't think people were paying a lot of attention to these races that happened in Canada in the past week historically. Is it actually good for the sport that there's more pressure and attention focused on these kind of like second or third tier events and you're getting stars of the sport showing up? Could that potentially reinvigorate cycling and like tier two markets like canada or the united states yeah, or is this just yeah, i mean it's definitely something to be said i mean those were awesome races and yeah we all paid attention to them but 
it came at the expense of the Vuelta. So if you're eating yeah. your own premium product, it'd be like if ESPN put all their like best games on ESPN Plus, and then it's like, okay, so I don't need a cable subscription anymore. Uh, that it's like it's cannibalizing the the top races. Like World should be the priority, not. Marco Pantani Classic, which is tomorrow, which I am excited to watch, by the way. I will be watching that. But, I mean, a lot of these guys are just going to stay in Europe and race these second and third level races, which are fun. Um, but they're not. I mean, I was even watching, it was uh, Giro Toscano the other day, Toscana, and like they were racing on a road with cars on it, like pedestrian cars. Like these are not, in my opinion, that's not something that should be happening at a top level race with the best riders. It can, if anything, it can make it feel a bit amateurish. If you didn't know the sport and you turned that on, you'd be like, what the heck's going on here? You'd be like watching a tennis match, but there's like people getting tennis lessons also on the court. It would not <laughs> feel like a professional event. I, it was kind of embarrassing, actually, for the sport of cycling. So I, I feel like this is coming at the expense of the premium product. Okay. I've read some comments you made to media recently, Spencer. That led me to believe that is it your theory that we should see all of the top athletes at every Grand Tour? Did I interpret what you maybe not said every correctly? Grand Tour? But there should be. I mean, maybe yeah. Like obviously they would have to change something. Maybe shorten some of them. Um, that would be a big ask. Uh, maybe you could skip one Grand Tour. But yeah, there should be like a World Tour or like a World Cup, and you have to do all those races and. We can't have like Wout Van Aert in Montreal and then Remco Evenepoel in Spain. It's just not, it, it works for us maybe because we're well-educated in cycling, but I cannot imagine being new to the sport and being like, wait, what's going on here? Like, why are some guys in Canada and some guys in Spain? Just not how like a professional sport would ever be set up. Yeah, that makes sense. I also finally saw the finish of the Maryland Cycling Classic. I don't know if you've had a chance to go back and watch that, but once again, wow, just totally visually completely incomprehensible. It was severely backlit. I think it was, you know, starting to get near dusk, really harsh back really backlighting. Harsh. Yeah. It's so it was so gnarly. Like you could not tell there was no depth perception possible with what was happening. I've I've actually been talking to a friend of mine who has a lot of experience as a director of photography and with filmmaking and TV about this finish line situation, it might be really, it might be interesting to bring him on to talk about this because he had a lot of ideas about how we could potentially fix this situation. I know it's a drum I, I keep banging, but while we're on this topic of how can you make this sport easier to follow for the average person who maybe has a passing interest, just make it easy to understand what's happening when the race finishes so that you can see who's winning the race. I'm just going to keep saying that over and over. Um, yeah, going back to world, Spencer. So, who's your pick? Who have you got? Yeah, this who's is your like guy? the basic, the basic bit. <laughs> Sorry, I almost said a bad word. The basic pick <laughs> is what I meant to say. Tade Pogacar. I mean, he really, I, he really impressed me in Montreal. Uh, similar course, maybe not quite as hard in Australia, but the guy can win it solo. He can win it from a sprint. I think he's going to be hard to beat. How about you? Yeah, I've. Tade is my pick as well. I do wonder about Vanderpool. I just feel like he's aggrieved and he wants to make a statement, but we've kind of seen him just like blow up at the wrong moment. A number of, I mean, including at worlds before, right? When, uh, yeah. Right. His build up so has does, been weird. He's not been yeah. doing a ton of racing. Yeah. I mean, that's typical though. I feel like that was what he did prior to the, uh, prior to the Giro and then he came in but he only super hot he only won one stage I mean that's that's the worry about Vanderpool he's is he gonna be awesome yeah is he gonna be fun to watch is he gonna win is maybe a different question yeah it's all <clears throat> I almost feel I can't believe I'm saying this about Matthew Vanderpool generational talent but I'm starting to wonder is he like your friend who's always out doing secret training and maybe running himself into the ground and then winning occasionally but you know they could win a lot more than they are yes i mean i actually i just looked this up do you know how many wins uh wout van Aert has this year i'm gonna save 13 he is 11 which is a lot okay i think the most this year is 13 okay. um and then matthew vanderpool has four wins this year so you would expect those two guys to be on the same level um yeah and the fact that he only has four professional wins is it really was surprising to me and it's exactly what you're saying it feels like he's run down a lot 
Yeah. Uh, I see that Cycling News has put Michael Matthews on their list of 10 writers to watch. I guess they just had to fill some column inches. I don't think that Michael Matthews is likely to win this race. No disrespect to Bling. No, I mean, I almost just said it's too hard for him, but then he remember that awesome stage that he won at the yeah, tour. But I, I, yeah, do. I don't think, I don't think Bling is on the same level as Tade or Wout or Vanderpool, in my opinion. What about Alaphilippe? I mean, he's had this uh, really calm, tranquil recovery that, period. That would be the most Alaphilippe thing ever if he won this race. Um, I, I just don't see it happening. He's been in the, I, he's been in the ICU. That's not like, not at the most recent crash, but earlier this year. Just Worlds is about, you can't hide at Worlds. You know, you can fake it at a 200 kilometer race. Worlds is long. You know, it's close to 300K. Like if you have any cracks in your fitness, it gets exposed. If we had a goatee world championships in 2022, would you put Alaphilippe or Primos at the top of the podium? Uh, you know, I think, I think Alaphilippe just because he's been there longer, you know. It, he feels more comfortable in it. It doesn't feel put on at all. It's like part of his, his personality at this point. How about you? Uh, fair play, as GCN says. Yeah, I mean, um, if Alaphilippe had a personal logo, I feel it's, it'd be similar to Guy Fieri's logo. It would just be like the goatee in his sunglasses, probably. <laughs> Wait, so who's your pick for Worlds? Uh, my pick for Worlds is Tade. Today. And you know, actually, I was thinking wildcard pick. I don't know. I bet you would get pretty good odds on him. Is Dylan Van Barl? I mean, he almost won okay. it last year. It's hard courses. Is what I just said. You can't hide. Fitness is important. The guy is a, is a machine, um, incredibly fit. I, I would keep an eye on Van Barl. I think he could surprise some people here. Do you think we'll see Fred Wright maliciously destroy anyone and you know, uh, put them in the hospital? Yeah, he's, he's going to go out there and just crash everyone out. Is he is racing? Interesting. That's an interesting pick too, Andrew. To either crash, <laughs> I feel bad for Fred Wright. That was not his fault. Uh, but yeah, that's actually an interesting wildcard pick. I I would like to popularize the nickname the Smashing Machine for Fred Wright. So maybe going forward, we could just start referring to Fred Wright as the Smashing Machine um, in homage to Mark Kerr, the mixed martial artist uh, known during his Pride Championships day as <laughs> the Smashing Machine. It's like, man, you're well versed in your MMA. I I agree. Well, we'll let you get to your. Uh, we don't want to take up here. Uh, yeah, it's either a tea time you got to hit or another podcast or both. So we'll we'll let you get off to that. Yeah, it's a combo tea time podcast. It's how I like to combine my interests. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do have anxiety. Like, should I golf more? Do I need to be a better golfer? So I'm glad you're getting out there. You're hitting the links. Golf might be the new golf. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's hot now. All right. Talk to you later, Andrew. Yeah. Take care. <laughs>